Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. We're discussing Bolivar Mitchell's comments regarding his cloudy future with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. TV ratings from the Eastern and Western semifinals. Ottawa firing offensive coordinator Kahari Jones. Free agent lists for Calgary and Hamilton. And the CFL all-star lists. But first... You know, JC, I come out to the West Coast, Vancouver, your home city, and I just don't feel like I got a great welcome. You weren't at the airport with a sign for me to pick me up. You haven't invited me over for dinner. What's the deal, bro? This is how we're leading off the podcast? You're welcome to come out anytime, Dunk, but I think you're scared by the 45-minute drive from downtown. It's a little little too big for Mr. High-Class Justin Dunk to come out to little old White Rock. (laughs) About as scared as you were to come to hot yoga with me, but... I was terrified. Yes, I've been to hot yoga once in my life. Never again. Never again. He's done it before. Dude, what if I get you a free class at the place that I'm going to in East Hastings? I first of all, East Hastings. Wow, that's quite the choice. But um, I would die. I would die in the studio for the record. (laughs) This is self-preservation. I, I save a lot of money on hot yoga because yoga is always hot when I do it. So I don't have to pay. I don't have to pay for that extra heat. It's built in, baby. It's built in. Oh. JC, what if I get you a free class and come and pick you up? Uh no, no. I flexibility and heat do not do not go well for me. We could we could live stream the class and it'd be the first live stream where people would have to pay to not watch it. We can call it fundraiser. It could be for charity. Pay to to not watch JC do hot yoga. That'd be a great fundraiser. No, I I money to a good cause. When I was a very young kid, I used to want to be a herpetologist, somebody who studies reptiles. Like when I was six or seven. This is an what? insight into young JC. Before <laughs> I was obsessed with football, I was obsessed with reptiles. And that dream came crashing down because I went to a reptile sanctuary and the thing was too hot from the humidity. I almost passed out. So I couldn't couldn't dream of being a herpetologist anymore. I had to focus on football. Yeah, who smells better though? The reptiles or the football players you coach? Mm. Uh ooh, that is a tough question. I have to say the reptiles though. Yeah, there you go. So it's not okay. It's a humidity thing, though. It's not a smell thing. Okay, makes sense. I guess you're not coming, but shout out to Oxygen Yoga and Fitness in East Vancouver. It's actually a beautiful area over here where my Airbnb is close to the old Pacific Coliseum, JC, right down by the water, man. But the one thing I got to say is I was expecting more sunlight. So many days I've woken up here and it's been dreary and gray. Is that all the time or is that just because of these seasons changing? Uh, it's like that for most of the winter, you know, gray and damp and dark. Yeah, that's, that's why I can't get the proper light on my face for the podcast. I'm actually a 10 out of 10 guys. It's, it's just the Vancouver gray that is, is making me look like well, hold this. Hold on, hold on. We're in the same city right now. Technically, I guess about 45 minutes apart and look how nice and bright I am compared to how dreary yeah, but you look like how it looks like outside. Dunk, you, you would be a supermodel in other circumstances. I'm, you know, just a 10 out of 10. <laughs> it's, it's economies of scale here. It's economies of scale. 
All right, time to move on. The Alouettes visit the Argonauts on Saturday for the East Final with Toronto favored by 10.5 points. Montreal used a familiar script to beat the Ticats in last week's Eastern semifinal, but do the Owls have any chance to knock off the 16-win Argos at BMO Field, who will be playing their first meaningful game since mid-September? This is the CFL, and anything can happen. There's a reason they play the games. However, I feel very confident, supremely confident, in the Toronto Argonauts' chances of winning this one. I am even tempted to take them minus the 10.5 points, as wildly Whoa. huge as that line is. The Montreal Alouettes, you, you said it, Dunk. It's a familiar script, right? The Alouettes go out there. They play mistake-free football on offense. They get a couple of big plays in the return game. They lead the league in net punting, right? They do all of those little niche things, right? And, of course, defensively, like, let's talk about Darnell Sankey and Sean Lemon, a couple of mid-season additions for the Alouettes, taking over that game, Ticats fans will be having nightmares about those two for the next six months as they wait for the 2024 season. But that script is just not one that can play out when you're playing an elite team, right? The Hamilton Tiger Cats, you can trust to shoot themselves in the foot and make some mistakes. The Toronto Argonauts, not so much. The Alouettes are going to have to try to play up to the Argonauts. They're going to need a 300-yard passing game from Cody Fajardo. They're going to need a 150-yard game from William Stanback. And they're going to need an untimely interception from Chad Kelly. They're going to need a turnover on specials. They're going to need something else a favorable penalty at some point at a key moment of the game to, and I think just to keep this one to a field goal, much less win it. So I am happy to take the Argos here yet to decide on the points because 10 and a half is a lot, but anything under 10, I'm slamming the Argos. I'll take the points right now. I don't care. that it's 10 and a half. I feel that confident in the Argos right now. And, just look at the numbers. The Montreal Alouettes have been great this season, right? 11-0 in the regular season, now 12-0 against teams that were beneath them in the standings who are under 500. But they're 0-7 against the big three in the league, BC, Winnipeg, and of course, Toronto. And I think the biggest disparity here is against those Argonauts. Montreal relies on an exceptional defense there's no discounting what that unit has been able to perform but Toronto's a different animal and Chad Kelly is a different animal and AJA Lett is a different animal and it's going to be tough to stop them down especially when you have a fairly conservative offense that doesn't exactly wow you with its level of talent and it's coming up against a defense that is arguably just as good as your defense and slightly more opportunistic in my mind in their ability to create turnovers in the Argonauts. So this is not a good matchup in any way for Montreal. I think Toronto is going to put up more points against that defense than most other teams would be capable of. And I just don't see a way that that Kogi Fajardo-led offense is going to be able to get one past the Argos especially a nearly completely healthy, if not fully healthy, Toronto Argonauts. The Argos have beat Montreal in each of their meetings this year, and the ones that were a little later down the stretch, the Argonauts didn't necessarily have a full, complete roster of the people that they have at their disposal. Andrew Harris is going to be back in the lineup. He knows playoff football very well, trying to get to, I believe it's his fourth straight Grey Cup and win his fourth straight Grey Cup. 
that veteran leadership, I think, can be key. You have some guys coming back and getting healthy on defense from that extra week off between these games. And it's just very hard to see Toronto losing. You know, anything can happen. But this Argonauts team is historically good for a reason. They have great starters across the board, but they have the best depth in the CFL, I would argue, you know, almost at any position group that you look at, including quarterback with Cam Duke. So I really like what the Argos have cooking here at home. There's been hype around this game more than the normal levels, I will say, in the GTA. I think they can get up over 25,000 fans for this game. The Trues are going to play before kickoff and at halftime of this game. That's a great get from MLSE to try to have even more bums in seats in the weather all in all, should be pretty good. It seems like it could be double-digit temperatures there. And as long as it doesn't rain, people don't have an excuse to not get out to this football game. So all these things are lining up for Toronto. And I think that's why they're such heavy favorites. That is a massive line for the playoffs, though, for the uninitiated. But I think that you guys are warranted in saying, especially Hodge, that if it's less than 10, you probably got to take the Argos. Well, and you mentioned the weather, Dunk. You mentioned the home field advantage, which is actually, I think, going to be a home field advantage for the Argos in this one. But also the week off, right? Like this this coaching staff has been sensational all season. Obviously, there's a ton of talent to work with in Toronto. I do also agree that they are the deepest team in the CFL. But you don't have a great team without great coaching. And the fact that these guys have had an extra week to sit back and watch everything that the Montreal Alouettes do well, everything that they've used this season to be successful when they have been successful. And they've had all that time to sit back and figure out, okay, how do we, how do we pick that apart? How do we take advantage of that? I would say the BC Lions did the same exact thing during their bye in the final week of the regular season ahead of the West semifinal against Calgary. And we're going to talk about that game in a little bit. But to me, that was the tale of two games, right? Two weeks ago at the end of the regular season, Calgary comes into Vancouver, shocks the Lions, and then all of a sudden at the West Semi, the Lions completely flip, flip the script and said, hey, everything that you do well and that makes you feel confident and good about yourselves, we're going to pick it apart. We're going to make you feel like JC at hot yoga. We're going to take <laughs> away everything that makes you feel confident, everything that makes you successful, and we're going to take it away and make you beat us other ways. And the Stampeders, despite a good start from Jake Bear on that initial drive, hitting Mark and Michelle for a touchdown, by and large, they didn't look very good. So to me, if there was ever a tie-breaking factor at play here, aside from the rest, because we know the Argos, of course, have had their players rested, but it's getting that coaching staff an extra week, an extra opportunity to do a deep dive on the film and to put the perfect game plan together, which I do think that coaching group is capable of doing. So I love the Argos for that reason. And again, is it possible the Alouettes win this one, go to the Grey Cup? Yes. But there's, oh, it's it's an awfully small chance, especially by CFL standards. I think that coaching staff and Ryan Dinwiddie deserve a whole lot of credit because there's going to be people that make a big deal about the fact that this is the Argos' first meaningful game since mid-September. I mean, we included it in our prompt. It's an incredible statistic that they were able to clinch first place as early as they did. And a lot of people will say, well, if nothing meant anything down the stretch, is this team going to not be ready for do-or-die playoff football? Can they turn the switch back on? I say to that, 
did they ever turn it off? Because it sure looked like down the stretch, this team, no matter who was playing, no matter how many backups were on the field, no matter how meaningless the game or how bad the opponent, the Toronto Argonauts looked like a dominant football team in every situation. And hey, they went toe-to-toe with a full-strength Winnipeg Blue Bombers squad when they're resting a whole whack load of starters. This is an incredible football team from top to bottom that was managed expertly in an unprecedented situation in terms of the amount of time they had to manage their players and prevent injury. They did that in expert fashion. Now they're fully healthy and they didn't lose a, a second, not a, not a, I don't know what the unit of energy is for this, but, they didn't lose any momentum throughout the entire end of that season, and they're going into the playoffs full strength in health and full strength in terms of their ability to perform a football game. You know, Cody Fajardo was very vocal going into that game against Hamilton last week, saying it's too late to buy stock in this team and we'll prove y'all wrong when we're holding the Grey Cup over our heads. I want to hear some of that kind of confidence before he goes in to play the Toronto Argonauts because it's much different playing a team that you know you've beaten a couple of times in the regular season, three times to be exact, and then turn around and have to face one of the best teams arguably in CFL history. So if Fajardo is exuding that kind of confidence, then that gives me a little bit more of a thought that perhaps Montreal could pull this upset. But I think a lot of this game actually rides on the shoulders of Fajardo. He was very mediocre during the regular season. 14 touchdowns, 12 picks. Wasn't asked to do a whole heck of a lot, admittedly, because they relied on their run game and that opportunistic defense. But Fajardo was going to have to make some throws, especially down the field, in this game for Montreal to even have a shot. Well, it's one thing to make plays against what was a very inexperienced Hamilton Tiger Cats secondary. It's another to make plays against a secondary that lost arguably the best defensive back in the league in Robertson Daniel to injury and has not skipped a beat, right? Mason Pierce, rookie, playing at an all-star level. Tavares McFadden has been great. So uh, Cody Fajardo is going to have to have the game of his life to win this one. Can he do it? I think it's possible, but I'm not betting on it. It is. He's in for arguably the toughest test of his career. The BC Lions visit the Blue Bombers on Saturday for the West final. Winnipeg is favored by four and a half points after resting last week, while the Leos clawed the Stampeders as Vernon Adams Jr. recorded 413 passing yards and five total touchdowns. Can the Lions pull the upset or are the Bombers heading to a fourth straight Grey Cup? I backed the Lions last year, and I'm going to back them again this year because this team, in the right moment with the right conditions, oh, when their quarterback, mer. when their quarterback <laughs> is on, can beat anyone in the league. We saw it earlier oh, this year mer. when they smoked the Bombers. Come on now, anyone now, in the even league you beat Toronto? I. In a one-off game, anything can happen. Would I pick Toronto in that matchup? Yes, I would currently pick Toronto in that matchup. But I think BC, pound for pound on offense at least, is slightly more explosive than Toronto. Toronto is deeper across the board. They're the most complete team. 
but BC's passing attack is more explosive than Toronto's. I, I don't think that's too controversial to say. They've got the best receiving core in the league and a guy who, had he had the performance he had in the playoffs in the last week of the regular season, would be the front runner for the MOP trophy in Vernon Adams Jr. Because that performance in the West semifinal was as good a game as I've seen from a quarterback ever. And VA has had some great games this year. He's This isn't the first time he's been over 400 yards. He has been exceptional, but there was something different about that game. From start to finish, he was on. There was maybe two throws in the entire game that you can point to and say, oh, He'd like that one back. That was a poor decision or a poor throw. Everything else was either a wise throw away or on the receiver or an on-point ball. And there were some incredible throws. He was feeling it. He was in the system. He was using his legs to his advantage. I will say this, and this might be a little bit hyperbole. As good as VA has been this year, there hasn't been a moment in any of those good games he's had where I went, well, that's as good as Nathan Rourke. Nathan Rourke is obviously a cut above. The, what he did was exceptional. There were moments in that game this past weekend where I sat there and went, wow, this is as good as some of the games Nathan Rourke played last year. I think his performance was that good. He was feeling himself that much. And you can criticize it all you want, Dunk. You can call him a head case. You can point to all the past things. But to his credit, he came off a bad performance against that same opponent and a awful week of practice. Everyone who was present told me that VA was throwing picks left and right in practice. He looked absolutely awful. And he found his mojo for that game. He settled in. And from start to finish, he was absolutely excellent. If he can do that against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers next week, it's going to be really tough for that team to beat them. You know, a lot of what you said is warranted, but let's not put Vernon Adams Jr. on the same level as Nathan Rook, okay? let's. Just I'm not putting him on the same level overall, but for that game, for that for moment, no. No. it was no. damn close. No, 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 no. Okay, what I want to see is how does Vernon Adams Jr. respond the first time Willie Jefferson or Jackson Jeffcoat or Adam Big Hill plant him on that frozen tundra at IG Field and he gets up, and the wind's blowing. Perhaps some snow is moving around there. Does he bounce back to his feet? Is he slow to get up? Does he look cold and brittle after that? Because that is the difference in this game. It's fine, well, and good to have five total touchdowns against a pretty terrible Stampeders team for most of the season in the Western semifinal. But to go out to Winnipeg in the cold, in the elements, where Vernon Adams Jr. throughout his career – hasn't necessarily been too good and really hasn't even had that big of a sample size in these moments, I'm picking the Blue Bombers. They know how to get it done. Brady Oliveira is an absolute sledgehammer, especially in the fourth quarter, and that hurts even more when your sledgehammer is frozen and just beating away on that front. I think that is a key difference in this game is that Michael Shea is going to win that field position battle over and over and over again and that the Bombers can consistently run the football. I give the quarterback edge to Zach Kolaris, as many people know in this game. I would actually argue that the Blue Bombers receiving group is better, yeah, I said it, better 
than the Lions. And I think overall, Winnipeg has a better defense. So to me, I think this game could be a win by margin from Winnipeg. Dunk is wrong about the receiving core. Winnipeg's receiving core is not as talented. Part of the reason why is Dalton Schoen is still out with an ankle injury. If he does play, he will not be at 100%. However, JC is wrong about his prediction for this game. And the reason is he's a soft West Coast oh, mama's he boy. He said it. Who has no who has no appreciation for what actual weather is like. The <laughs> forecast for this game is minus three. That's the high with the mix of sun and cloud. And the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are probably hosting all kinds of bizarre ceremonial rituals at midfield of IG Field at off hours, trying to summon even worse weather. Because the worse the weather is for this game, the better the chances of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers winning this game. The BC Lions have been completely incapable of running the ball this season. They are the worst rushing attack in the league. That offensive line has broken down at inopportune times. And defensively, Ben Halatic could miss this game in the middle of that defense, which has been undersized and been run over at times this season. If this game was in the Dome, and you could rewind the tape and go back a month ago, if this game was in the Dome, I'm happy to pick the BC Lions because they'd be coming off a bye, and that Dome is where the BC Lions are built to have success. They are not built to have success on IG Field. I'll use a car analogy. The, the BC Lions Uh-oh. are bringing a Lamborghini to a Hummer race, okay? <laughs> the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are driving a Hummer. They are built to win this game. And I will also say this about Vernon Adams Jr. Because, JC, you've been banging this drum and a bunch of other media. Well, I say a bunch of other. There's like four media types in, you know, Western Canada these days, it feels like. <laughs> But there have been a bunch of media in Vancouver. Every time VA plays well, it's like, see, guys, he's really good. And the answer is, we all know that. Literally nobody thinks that Vernon Adams Jr. stinks. He is a top three quarterback by anyone's measure. Everybody knows that. And if he comes into Winnipeg and wins, good for him. I don't think that would shock anybody. Vernon Adams Jr. is not Taylor Cornelius. And nobody talks about him. Like he is. We talk about him like he's a top three quarterback. Can we stop throwing a parade each time he throws a touchdown pass? Like, let's just calm down and take a breath. But for this week, given the weather, given the circumstances, given the rest Winnipeg's had, the coach's staff, go ask Nathan Work what it was like to play at IG Field last year. Go ask Cody Fajardo. The Riders won the turnover battle the West Final two years ago. Something like six to one. And they lost the game. Like, like, like. You talk about the noise at IG Field. You talk like I'm there in the press box feeling the reverberations of the crowd on my feet as I'm trying to write my game story. That environment is different. It is the best home field advantage in the CFL, not by a small margin, by a considerable margin. And that's why I believe the Winnipeg Blue Bombers will win. I also think they can cover. And again, last year, year before, the Bombers did not play very well in either of those West Finals. But when you combine the crowd and the weather, my goodness, they are hard to beat for that game. There's no arguing that IG Field is the most hostile environment in the CFL at this stage. That is absolutely true. But the weather on that forecast doesn't really scare me because it's just cold. 
if there's no pre- precipitation of some p- form, I think but you're, the DC but Lions. But you're even telling on yourself. You think minus four is cold. You are telling <laughs> on yourself, my friend. What? It's not that telling on you- yourself. <laughs> It's not that bad. And if there's no precipitation, if there's no snow, if there's no rain, if there's no sleet, if it's not crazy windy, I don't see how that level of cold, which again, as you yourself admit, is not that cold, will have any effect on the BC Lions offense. And yes, if you were to go into that situation for the very first time, it would be shocking and it would be unsettling and you have to adapt to that. That much is absolutely true. But these BC Lions were there in that same stadium in these same conditions last year, as you yourself pointed out. And yes, I think the cold had a little bit of an effect in that game and threw some people off. I talked to Josh Woods, who had an outstanding game at linebacker in the West semifinal. And he mentioned how, as a California kid, he'd never experienced anything like that playoff game in Winnipeg before. He said, you know, it was shocking going into that environment for the first time. I didn't know what it was going to be like. But he's experienced it now. And he said, you know, once you got it by the fourth quarter, it, it, had, it had gone away. It's out of your mind. Like, it doesn't have an effect anymore. And now going in understanding what that's going to be like, understanding how you have to prepare for that is going to be huge because as veteran as Winnipeg's group is, BC's group is pretty much intact from last season. There's not a lot of new pieces. This is a whole team that was in this circumstance a year ago and ultimately came very close in that game with a late surge from Nathan Rourke. I think if they can come out flying, they can win this game. Now, if VA stinks out the joint in the first quarter and Winnipeg's able to run the ball, this game is over, right? We will know what the result is going to be very early on. But if this offensive attack can go out and throw the ball around the yard, I think they have a huge shot at an upset. There's so much going on here. First of all, it's not that cold for people on the prairies. JC, out here in Vancouver, there's people wearing winter It's jackets. very cold and it's for like the BC Lions. 10 degrees. Exactly. Correct. It's very cold. There's winter jackets being worn out in Vancouver, and it's 10 degrees. Okay, second Plaguing point. about all the rain. Let's go In fairness through. to the Vancouverites, when you spend $1,500 on a winter coat you don't need, you need any excuse to wear it, don't you? <laughs> all right, let's go through the receiving course because – if I had to take these guys, especially in the playoff situations, Kenny Lawler or Keon Hatcher, give me Kenny Lawler. Nick Dembski or That's Alex fair. Hollins, give me Nick Dembski. Like, where am I wrong here, boys? Ami Grimes is better than Drew Wallatarski. How about that? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Fair. How about, true. How about- <laughs> if Joan was healthy is more what I was saying. Obviously, he's not going to be. You got Javon Katoy, you got Justin McKinnis, and you got Lucky Whitehead on the damn bench. Like that's what they're, I mean. They're sixty. There, it's kind of overrating BC in a sense because he hasn't done much. He can't stay healthy. I mean, he's still uh, yeah. he's still like a eight hundred yard receiver this year, and they've benched him. Like that's not nothing. It's not admit, nothing, like, but it's not. Lucky Whitehead is on. Thinks it is, but I'm not even putting him in my starting equation. To me, the starting equation is the big three of Hatcher, Hollins, and Rhymes, who are all exceptional. Javon Katoy, who is a size mismatch like no other, and Justin McKinnis, who has been 
great this year and has outperformed Lucky Whitehead. And then your guy on the bench is Lucky Whitehead, who is better than most of the receivers in the league, right? He's got 800 yards. I think he's like 12th in receiving yards. And he's benched. Like, that's the type of player that the BC Lions are benching right now in the receiving core. You can critique a lot about the BC Lions. You cannot argue that they don't have the best receiving core at this stage in the CFL. All right. It's just a shame Point that Lucky taken. Whitehead can't play guard. <laughs> or run the ball for that's BC, where, because I think that's where that's this game where they is won and lost, yep. JC. You said if the Blue that's Bombers can run the ball. The that, Bombers it, are going to be able game, to run the football consistently. That's why... You voted for Brady Oliveira in the in the ballot. The, the, the Bombers can run the ball consistently. There's no doubt in my mind that they are able to accomplish that. But if VA can get them up 14 points, the Bombers can't run the ball. That's how this yes, sport they, works. They're still going to run is the ball. The, this is the, they're still well, going to run the ball. I welcome them to run the ball then because you can eat up your damn clock. And as long as the offense keeps ticking, no, you're putting yourself in a bad situation. Clock, it's it's stupid. You clock. don't run the ball if you need to score points. That's <clears> why offenses <throat> defeat run games. The defense doesn't stop the run. A so good offense does. And we've seen this. Gets <sighs> down 14 points. The other team just shouldn't run the ball for the rest of the game. It's only twenty second play clock. This myth. I'm not saying you can't. Eat. It's happened in two straight playoff games. The Calgary Stampeders had a fine running game in this playoff game, and they were more consistent with it than they were the year before when everyone harped on them for abandoning it too early. Kadeem Carey had 75 yards on 14 carries. He had some slashing runs where he got through the BC Lions defense, and it didn't matter at all. Because they couldn't hit the passing game. But they couldn't hit the deep shot. It does not matter. It does yeah, not. I think, I think it's irrelevant to compare these two games yes. when one is in a dome and one is in the Arctic tundra in the city that I call home. And it one is, is a Calgary, completely one different is conversation. The running, the running game is essential to ending games. And I think that's a big flaw with the BC Lions, right? If they are up by 20 like they were against Calgary, right? That margin will shrink because as soon as they have to turn down the offense and play more conservative, they can't run the ball well enough to eat up the clock and and close out games. And they will allow opponents to come closer to them. That is a real weakness of the BC Lions. Conversely, it's a real strength of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. When they are up in games and they are leading, Brady Oliveira can close out an entire quarter. Nobody else touches the football and he grinds them down. But that requires the other three quarters to go well first. How many times this season, Hodge, legitimately, have you have I had this conversation with you while Brady was so great in that game and you said, Wow, he really only did it in the fourth quarter. And it's true yeah, happened. because yeah. they get the lead in other ways, and Oliveira is the closer, right? I'm saying the BC Lions offense, if they're on their game, is good enough to prevent them from having a closer, right? If you aren't in a situation where Brady oh, Oliveira is grinding out the but clock in the fourth quarter, but now you're simultaneously contra- you're completely contradicting. You're saying if if, if BC goes up by fourteen nothing early, this game's over. But also, oh geez, BC has no closer; they can't run the ball at all. They're not going to be able to kill the clock. Like, no, I, I think if Winnipeg goes up early, this game I don't think it's done because it's the CFL. But I think it's a huge advantage if BC you goes agree. up early. I. It, obviously, you'd rather be up, but I don't think it's a huge advantage early in this one. I think that this game is Winnipeg's to lose. 
Talent-wise, I think these teams are very close. I think we can all agree on that. However, for first of all, home field advantage at IG is massive. Secondly, having a week off while your opponent is playing is massive. And then thirdly, to have that weather perfectly suit. Which, and by the way, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers don't practice 90 minutes outside of town. They're practicing on that surface and have every single day this week when it's been cold and rainy and wet and snowing and sleeting and icy and nasty. They're going to know exactly what shoes they need to be wearing, exactly how they need to practice their footing. And the BC Lions, what are they going to do? They're going to fly in on Friday, do a quick walkthrough, which at this point of the season is a joke, and they're going to kind of sort of try to get going, and that's it. Like, that is a massive advantage for the home team. If you throw these two clubs in a neutral zone, I think it's 50-50, with the circumstances being what they are. I think there's an 80% chance Winnipeg wins this game, which is why I'm happy to take them Minus the four and a half. Anything under a tutty, I'm taking Winnipeg to win this one. And next week, we'll be sitting here. Actually, we won't be sitting here. We'll be sitting in Hamilton for the Grey Cup ahead of a Toronto-Winnipeg Grey Cup. And Jace will be eating them words. Jace, you're taking BC, right? I'm taking BC. Yeah, I'm ta- I think that their offense is good enough to pull this upset off. And I loved what I saw from them. And eventually something has to happen with Winnipeg, right? There there has to be a crack in the system. And you've noted yourself, Hodge, those last two West Finals, they haven't exactly lit on fire. Yeah, they've won those games. Did they win? Did they win? Okay, is that your standard? I I guarantee you that's not There's no style points. You win or you lose. And if anything, it's more of a compliment that they played poorly and won. Imagine, Imagine what would happen if they played well. I'm not discounting their accomplishments. You can't argue that any team has been better than the Winnipeg Blue Bombers over the last four years, right? They've been exceptional. My point is they haven't always been dominant. In those last two West Finals, they haven't been dominant, and they are just getting older, right? And you you lose this game, and a couple of people will probably go to the retirement home, right? It's it's a team that is long in the tooth, and that's an advantage in many ways, but it's also a weakness in some ways. They just had a week off. They just had a and week off to rest their old bodies. And, some, Again, and sometimes I, it takes game, your body a while to get back in. I, this game was decided – I said this a month ago when they played at Vancouver. This game will be decided. The West final will be decided by that regular season game. If this game was in Vancouver, the Bombers had just played. They got to go to the Dome where they're not built to win. You're 100% right. Right now, you're out to lunch. The Bombers are going to win this game. And obviously, they're going to come off the mountain at some point. The Bombers will probably stink in two, three years because we all know they're too long in the tooth. They're going to lose some good coaches to hires elsewhere, all that stuff. But right now... They won this game a month ago. They did. It's in their building. They have the rest. They have the prep. They have the time. They have every conceivable advantage. There's going to be 31,000 drunk people (laughs) screaming at the top of their lungs every time Vernon Adams Jr. sets his foot on the field. That's a lot different than playing in the Dome in Vancouver. Man, the longer this conversation goes on, it just seems like JC's been on a run of this West Coast Kush or something because this guy is just (laughs) up in the clouds today. It's unbelievable. Oh, my God. And... The points, okay? I don't understand 
how there's even an argument about it, but that's fine. We'll put a clown hot hat on JC in person next week in Hamilton. <laughs> Let's go. Hey, hey, I expect the same if the Lions are the ones in the final. I'll get a pair of clown hats for the two of you because it's about time that we had some new blood in the Great Cup, in my opinion. I, that's a separate conversation. If if you want to talk about who who should win for the sake of entertainment, or you want to mm-hmm. talk about what would bring more intrigue to the game, that's fine. I agree that BC would be a more interesting storyline. That is not the conversation here. We're living in reality, not hypotheticals. Movie by Mitchell said so he doesn't foresee himself being back with the Hamilton Tiger Cats in 2024 after playing only the last six minutes of the Eastern semifinal, throwing for six yards and one interception. Head coach Orlando Steinhauer declined to comment on what Mitchell said, though he commended him for wearing his heart on his sleeve. Steinhauer also said that the team will support offensive coordinator Scott Milanovic, who has been linked to the Rough Riders head coaching vacancy if he gets an opportunity to coach elsewhere. Who is the bigger story in Steeltown right now, Mitchell or Milanovic? This is a difficult question to answer because Mitchell is the bigger story because of his star power. Guys, we know it from when we write about Bo Levi Mitchell on the site and the traffic and even talking about him on the podcast, this guy just attracts attention. But I would argue that Scott Milanovic, because what you can't ask Orlando Steinauer is, are you going to be there next season? Because the guys making those decisions are essentially going to be Scott Mitchell and the caretaker, Bob Young. I think that is something that Hasn't been talked about in Hamilton a bunch. I've talked to some people around the league who felt like there was a possibility that if the Ticats lost that Eastern semifinal against Montreal, which has now happened, that the Ticats could undergo, I hate using this term, but blowing it up and having it much different. And I think Milanovic factors into that because if you're Bob Young or Scott Mitchell sitting there, you're looking at the record of the Ticats, which has gone rather mediocre since Orlando Steinauer has taken over this dual role. Remember in 2019, there were co-general managers, Drew Alamang and Sean Burke for that team. So when they had a great regular season, it didn't mean much because they didn't win in the Grey Cup. They got slapped by the Blue Bombers out in Calgary. But if you look at what has transpired now in three straight years with Steinauer in that dual role, it's been a rather mediocre club. So I think you have to look at this and say, okay, would we rather have Steinauer as our head coach with an actual GM there? Ed Hervey has been a general manager before. Would we rather have Steinauer as our general manager and vice president of football operations and Scott Milanovic as our head coach? He has that sexiness coming from the NFL, has developed a bunch of quarterbacks and clearly at least continued the development with Taylor Powell, because I don't think that we can credit everything that Powell did this season to just Milanovic. Tommy Condell deserves a lot of that for what he did with him in training camp up until the point where the Ticats gave him his walking papers. So I think there is lots to be decided there within the front office and the coaching staff before then you can get to Bolivar Mitchell. But it's very clear that Mitchell will likely not be back on the type of contract that he's on 500 plus thousand dollars. But when you're Mitchell and you're talking about playing elsewhere, guys, there's not really any other 
markets you could go other than potentially the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And you have to think that the Riders are looking at Drew Brown and getting that checkbook out to try to entice a former rival quarterback to come to the green and white. I'm going to ask you boys a series of yes or no questions. I would like you to answer them, please. Question one. Will the Hamilton Tiger Cats be willing to bring Bolivar Mitchell back for half a million dollars next season? No. No. So that means they have two choices. They can cut him or they can renegotiate his contract. Bolivar Mitchell's only leverage in that situation is to go elsewhere. Would another team in the CFL give, right now, give Bolivar Mitchell half a million dollars? No. 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 Then the question becomes, is there another opportunity for Bolivar Mitchell to make, let's call it a QB backup money, I guess? Mid-tier money? Talking maybe, maybe. Yeah, mid, mid-tier money. Call it like 120, 150 on the cap, playtime to maybe three, 400,000. Is there another opportunity potentially off the field for Bolivar Mitchell to make that kind of money? Yes or no? I believe there would be, yes. Yes. There we go. So... When you have an opportunity for Bo, who has become very tied to the TSN broadcasting crew, I'm led to believe he was even at TSN, like the CFL and TSN Christmas gathering last year after doing the Grey Cup broadcast with them. And he's done a great job on that the last couple of years. To me, it makes no sense for Bo Levi Mitchell to go elsewhere and play. Yes, it's possible he could do it, but at the end of the day, he's moved his family's base to Southern Ontario, where the panel is anyway, where a lot of CFL games get called. And it, it, is he really, after one year in Southern Ontario, going to pick up and move to Regina so he could back up Trevor Harris? Like, is, is he really going to pick up and move to, to, to Edmonton to play? Like, like well, this he's, doesn't he's make got sense that, to me. He's still got that house in Regina, right? The guy right, he's talking yeah. about? Yeah. Clearly, that would, be yes. a, that would be a smooth and then, transition. And then, let's add in something. And I don't want to be disrespectful when I say this. So I want to first acknowledge that Bo is a two-time Great Cup champion, two-time MOP, has done amazing things. I'll happily vote for put him in the Hall of Fame one day. But Bo Levi Mitchell has stunk out the joint the last, not year, years, plural. It has been several years since he has been good. Now, this year was, yes, injuries, all that stuff. But we know exactly what the Hamilton Tiger Cats think of him because they let him rot on the bench for 54 minutes of the East semifinal. Orlando Steinauer can say what he says about loving Bo as a guy and blah, blah, blah. We have a great relationship. But at the end of the day, actions speak louder words. You left his butt on the bench for 54 minutes while Matthew Schultz was not exactly lining it up. 144 yards and a pick. Woof against a, albeit talented, Alouette's defense. So to me, the odds of Bo being back are extremely small. The only way he'd be back is if he desperately wants to keep his football career going and he's willing to take like a third of the money he's currently making. But to me, the more logical option for Bo is to leave his playing days behind, stop crapping on his playing legacy, and go to the booth where, guess what? He could probably make more money being a TSN personality for the next, what, 25 years? I mean, he's only 33. He could probably do it. Like, like, 
do it till you're Matt Dunnigan's age. Matt Dunnigan's in his early sixties. Like if TSA could make the right, bank over I think the next that's a whole other years. conversation whether okay, Apple fair enough. or Amazon comes in and steals them. But I know. You're but saying. if you're Apple or you're Amazon or you're Rogers or you're any other group who potentially has interest in the exclusive rights to the CFL, you want to make a splashy hire. You don't think that Bowley by Mitchell is at or near the top of that list? To me, he would be the number one guy on my list to go and get as a talking head because for the reasons you mentioned, Doug, you know that people care about what Bolivar Mitchell has to say. So to me, the bigger story is Bo and the fact that, at least in my opinion, it's time for him to move on. I respect his autonomy, his agency. If he wants to continue on playing in his career, that's great. But it's not going to look like Bolivar Mitchell 2018. It's not even going to look like Bolivar Mitchell 2023. It's going to look like Bolivar Mitchell, the old savvy mentor who's more of a coach, honestly, than a player. You hit the nail right on the head there, Hodge. But I do think we're burying the lead just a little bit here because we're talking about Mitchell's comments, but we have not really delved into why he made them. And it's because he was allowed to rock on the bench for 54 minutes of a playoff game. And the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Orlando Steinhauer made the decision to start Matthew Schiltz instead of their highest paid player, their franchise quarterback, the guy they went out and got in the offseason, which was astounding at the time that they made that call. And yes, Bo Levi Mitchell has not played well in Hamilton, but since coming back from injury in the slow reintroduction, I thought he looked better, right? He was improving. There was a little hiccup that last week, but he was under a lot of pressure. I thought he had done enough that he would be the automatic starter in this situation. It shocked me that Matthew Schultz got the nod. And look, Bo Levi Mitchell probably wouldn't have gone out there and lit the world on fire at this stage in his career based on the precedent that he set. I don't know if putting Bo Levi Mitchell on the bench was a mistake, right? I don't know that. We don't know what that would have looked like. But what I can say with relative certainty is starting Matthew Schiltz was a mistake because he didn't play well. He underperformed in that game and he looked lost at times. And you kept him in there for almost the entire thing. You could have pulled him at halftime. You could have put Bo Levi Mitchell in with time to get comfortable and provide a spark and actually do something. Instead, you waited until it was out of reach. You threw him into a bad situation late for a hope and a prayer. And that was not fair to Bo Levi Mitchell, no matter how much he has declined at this stage in his career. There was no reasonable expectation that he could do anything at that point. I thought this was mismanaged from the very beginning by the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And I'm sure this isn't going to look very good on Orlando Steinhauer's resume when it's being evaluated on how to handle his job going forward. Part of the reason that Bo Levi Mitchell was open to making the move to Southern Ontario when he did purchase a house, his family, I should say, in a nearby town to Hamilton was with the TV future in the back of his mind. He's very interested in it. He wanted to develop and learn that part as much as he could. Obviously, at the same time, trying to play high quality football with the Tiger Cats. And, you know, I think Hodge made a very smart point earlier, even though he said it quickly that Bo Levi Mitchell needs to sit back here, and I'm hoping that he's done this. He's a pretty smart dude, savvy individual, and say, if I can't play at the level that 
people are used to seeing me play at, should I be playing anymore? Am I putting my legacy in this league at risk? Now, part of that, honestly, has been injuries. You can go all the way back to before the pandemic where he had that nasty shoulder injury. And to be quite honest, he's never really been the same since. That leaves you wondering if he didn't dive for that ball. I believe it was against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. It's been so long ago and didn't suffer that injury. Would we still be seeing prime Bo Levi Mitchell? I think there's certainly a chance of that. And then he's had these other injuries that have compounded. So I think when he is deciding what he wants to do, money's going to play a factor. He's going to have to know what are the Ticats or potentially other CFL teams willing to pay me in hard money, which is kind of the CFL's term for guaranteed money. And what does that equate to compared to what you could get from TSN as a broadcaster, be it on the panel or in the booth? There's lots of decision-making to go on there from Bo Levi Mitchell. And I think it's a fascinating one because of all of those different angles. Well, and some people have said, well, why did Bo even go to Hamilton? Why not just retire? Well, there is 500,000 reasons why <laughs> Bo Levi Mitchell went to Hamilton. This is a new conversation this offseason because I think we can confidently say after six touchdowns and 10 picks over six starts, during which he went two and four as a starter, by the way, this year, there's not going to be 500,000 reasons for Bo Levi Mitchell to play next year. There's going to be maybe a third of that, half of that, if he's lucky. That makes this a completely different conversation. And by the way, I want to say this too quickly before we move on to address the coaching situation in Hamilton. The CFL's operations cap has led teams to start giving people jobs that they shouldn't have for fear of losing them to other teams. And that is something that I think has plagued the Ticats. I think Orlando Steinauer is a great coach. I don't think he's a president. Dave Dickinson, I think, is a great coach. I don't think he's a GM. And the quicker some of these teams figure out that maybe they need to... by the, we, we can even go back in this conversation, by the way. Dave Dickinson became the head coach of the Calgary Stampeders because they didn't want to lose him, right? He was, an, he was an amazing quarterback developer and offensive coordinator. I've even talked to people who had Dave Dickinson as a head coach say, not sure he's a head coach. I think he's an amazing offensive coordinator. He's a great quarterbacks coach. Well, guess what? Now he's a head coach and a GM. Look at the team. It stinks. Look at the quarterback. Did Jake Mayer look like he was being groomed by a quarterback guru this year? Or did he look like a, a confused young quarterback who didn't really know what was going on? So to me, this is part of a greater conversation where teams have to get smarter and keep guys in the roles they're best suited for, knowing, okay, they might are, we might get cherry-picked. Somebody might bring him in for a promotion. But at the end of the day, we have to keep guys where we think they truly belong and not just stick them in – you know, promoted areas to either get them more money or to stop them from leaving. Because if you raise a guy's job up to one that he shouldn't have, what's the point? Let him go at that point. I believe that's called the peer principle, right? That at some point, everyone gets promoted to the point of incompetence. And I think that has been shown in some CFL franchises this season, for sure. But I, I don't necessarily like the word incompetence because to me, being a head coach is very different than a GM, and that's very different than being a president. 
I just think you're taking somebody with some who's who's got an amazing skill set for one job, and now you're asking them to do a second job simultaneously that is a completely different skill set. Like to me, that is not advantageous for anybody. So I don't want to make it say make it sound like these people are incompetent because they're not. I think many cases they're super talented, brilliant people. They're just being asked to do the wrong thing, right? If we ask JC to stay on as a three down nation contributor and podcaster, but simultaneously be a professional hot yoga instructor, <laughs> right? That would not work out well for anybody. And it wouldn't mean that JC's incompetent. It would just mean that we are not using a talented person's skill set appropriately. And that is what I think is being done, partly because of the operations gap, and partly because teams are scared of losing people they value. No, I think you're slightly wrong there, Hodge. This is all because of the football operations cap. And I understand that the league wants some financial certainty and perhaps that helped attract new owners in Amar Doman and PKP in Quebec. But the fact that you can't pay, you know, I guess in this instance, let's say Orlando Steinauer, five, six hundred, maybe even seven hundred thousand dollars or more if you wanted to, just to be the head coach because he's so great at it. You can't do that. Now, I think that teams should be allowed to go out and pay these guys whatever they would like to pay them, and there shouldn't be a cap there. If the team makes a mistake and they're paying multiple head coaches for a number of years, that's fine. That's their financial decision. And some people might say, well, the playing field's not fair, but whatever rules you put in place, people are going to try to work around them or right to the letter of that rule anyways. And I would argue that it's actually backfired on the league because they've lost a lot of young and up and coming coaches because all of the money in the football operations cap is taken by the top tier of guys. Like so much of it is eaten up by a head coach and a general manager. If you have those two guys, two separate people, I should say doing different roles there's not any money left for coaches to be developed and come through the ranks and escalate up the pay scale as they should. So it's time to get rid of it. I'm so sick of it because it impacts the quality of the game and it puts people in roles that they're not ready for, as you alluded to, Hodge. Because they're greedy with the money, which, I mean, we all like to get paid, but we also like to win football games. The Hamilton Tiger Cats might be against the coach's cap, but there is another cap situation that I think they'll be thanking their lucky stars for, and that's the fact that the league ruled that they couldn't give Bo Levi Mitchell any guaranteed money on his contract when he came over, even though they inherited the deal from the Calgary Stampeders in that trade. They ruled it was not it didn't count as the same team. Now they'll be off the hook if they want to get rid of him this offseason. Otherwise, I think they would have had to have t- absorb a hefty financial hit in order to do that. And, you know, that is not something that should just be sort of thrown by the wayside. If the Tiger Cats, let's say, had committed, I'm trying to think of what the exact numbers were, but $200,000 to Bo Levi Mitchell in 2024, does that maybe make them lean towards keeping Mitchell on the roster or do they just eat that money on the cap and get rid of them altogether? And they were arguing to do that. Like Scott Mitchell wanted to be able to guarantee that money in 2024 for Bolivar Mitchell. And now they got to be saying, whew, 
Good thing we don't have, timeline, to have that on the hook. Your timeline is off slightly. Keep in mind, this would have been the 2025 because it's a three-year deal. The money's guaranteed the last year of the contract. So the money would have been not guaranteed in 2025, not 2024, which in a way almost makes it worse. But Points still stand. Points still stand. It certainly would have incentivized them to keep him around, I think, or to because we've never had a situation in the CFL before where you had dead cap, right? That's not that's unprecedented, unprecedented at this stage. And every team that has given some guaranteed money to a quarterback, right? You think about Edmonton with Taylor Cornelius. You think about Calgary with Jake Mayer, who were the first two to get it, and. Hamilton arguing to do it for Bo Levi Mitchell and the league saving them from themselves. All of those teams a year later, you're like, wow, that seems like a real poor decision to give guaranteed money to those guys. And it's caused Chris Jones to be out here talking like in Edmonton, it's an open quarterback competition going in next season. It's like, bro, Trey Ford's your starting quarterback. I don't care how much guaranteed money Taylor Cornelius comes, excuse me, has on his contract. Come on, man. And the, and the Stampeders have full confidence in Jake Mayer, who is at best the seventh or eighth best quarterback in the CFL. I would love to roll with him for another couple of years. Jeez. <laughs> Let's move on. Three Down Nation has exclusively reported the Tiger Cats and Stampeders free agent lists. Both teams have been eliminated, of course, from the postseason. Which player on either list do you see as the most important priority for each team to resign. I'm going to start. Uh, I, I'm just going to do a, a Calgary Stampeders pick. I'll let you boys talk about the tabbies. I'm going a little bit off the board here, but I got to pound the table for my hoggies. I'm going with Bryce Bell, former second round pick out of Wilfrid Laurier. There is only one player in the CFL who is capable of starting at all five positions along the offensive line. That is Bryce Bell. He was the team's sixth man for most of the season, but he eventually won a tackle spot and was, I think, the best tackle, regardless of passport, who the Stampeders had on offense. He's a pending free agent. He deserves to get paid. And by the way, he became somewhat of a household name during the West Semi when he made a tremendous catch out of the back or out of the kind of a tight end formation that was shifted. 12 yards, little stutter step, dodging Marcus Sales. That was slick. Honestly, you could make a case he was one of Calgary's better receivers this year, given some of the drops that they had. So I'm saying Bryce Bell is the biggest priority for the Calgary Stampeders to resign. Yeah, I'm going to go with a Hamilton Tiger Cat here because you look at the Calgary Stampeders list and you are just over underwhelmed with the options they have of people to bring back. I think Bryce Bell is one. I know, Dunk, you're going to mention the other guy who I would have on that list. Everyone else I can basically take or leave. But the Hamilton Tiger Cats have some big names that they do need to retain. And cue the Western heist music because the Bakersfield Bandit is about to come out with a huge payday, right? He's going to rob the Ticats here. Big money bags over his shoulder, the the face mask, just like his nickname. Stavros Katsantonis took over that starting safety position this year. He's been a fantastic special teamer in depth piece the last couple of seasons. This year, he became... I think the second best safety in the CFL behind Marc-Antoine Decois in Montreal. He was absolutely fantastic. He's exactly what I saw in college when I watched him out here at UBC. He's opportunistic. He's a heavy hitter. He does all the things you want from a starting safety. 
And unfortunately, what this means is Tunde Adelike, who has had that starting safety role and it's very versatile in this in the secondary, is probably going to go elsewhere in free agency. At this stage, he's the highest paid defensive back in the CFL. So you can pay Stavros a huge pay raise and you're still going to be saving money at that position because you're not going to pay him as much as Tunde would demand. I think it's a well worth it to do that. He is exceptional at the safety position. Kind of some irony there because Katsantonis took that position over from Adelike, who was the highest paid defensive back in the CFL during the 2023 season. Mike Rose is the guy for the Stampeders that JC alluded to. He is an absolute must re-sign pass rusher, dominant on the line of scrimmage, excuse me, against the run as well. For Hamilton, I got two guys, and I'm surprised JC didn't want to go with one of the big fellas. Brandon Revenberg is arguably the best guard in the league, and he's definitely one of the best guards in the league. He's anchored this line for a number of years. The Tiger Cats need to pay up. Like, I'm talking Drew Desjardins kind of money, $250,000 range for this guy. He's in the prime of his career, and he has been so consistent playing at an elite level. The other guy is their number one receiver that they developed in-house who is as explosive as they come in the league right now in Tim White. I would imagine with a second great season, he's going to attract some NFL interest so he can entertain that. But the Tiger Cats need to get this guy re-signed for multiple years. He is an absolute game breaker. He has shown that he can handle the load of being a number one guy. It was supposed to be Tim White and Duke Williams. That <laughs> kind of one-two punch really didn't wow. work out the way the Tiger Cats envisioned. It's got to be Tim White back in black and gold for the Tiger Cats. Since our last episode, the CFL announced the divisional finalists for the 2023 year-end awards, as well as the divisional all-star teams. Do you think the voters got it right? And if not, where did they air? Look, I don't agree with every selection on these lists, but I'm not going to go into the nitpicky reasons why I'd pick this guy over that guy for a lot of the positions. Cause I think some of it comes down to preference and there's good arguments to be had, but anyone out there, members of the media, listen to me. If you voted Sean McEwen for West all-star center, you need to resign your position as a football reporter in Canada. That is absolutely Ooh. egregious. He was not as good as Mark Corte. In Edmonton, he was not as good as Peter Godber out in Saskatchewan, and he sure as hell was not as good as Chris Kolonkowski in Winnipeg, who is the best center in the CFL this season. That's one of the most egregious all-star selections that I have ever seen, and it was purely done based on Sean McEwen's name recognition by a bunch of people who can't be bothered to actually watch offensive linemen. It was atrocious. JC, I will say that there are defensive players around the league who have a lot of respect for Sean McEwen. Hey, I have a lot of respect for Sean McEwen. He's had a long career. He's been dominant for stages. I'm talking about this year. This is a 2023 award, and he was fine on the worst offensive line in the CFL. And you can't be just fine as a center when you're in charge of that whole unit. Now, If he had more help, could he have had a better season? 
sure. But in terms of performance, he was nowhere near the level of an all-star. And they left the best guys in the league this season off that list in order to give a guy who didn't deserve it recognition. And, and you know, to me, that that's inexcusable. JC's all fired up and I'll pour gas on the fire because my favorite pick among the West and East Division All-Stars is Zach Calaris, the quarterback. He is the best quarterback in the West Division, right, JC? I disagree with that selection. However, I can respect the arguments on both sides, and I think there is merit to both of them. For the record, the PFF grading, and say what you want about PFF, but the grading, I think, is worth looking at, especially when it comes to the offensive linemen who don't necessarily have statistics to compare. They're number one graded offensive lineman at a score of 72.2 at the center position was Chris Kolonkowski. Second was Peter Godber at 70.3. Third was Darius Sirocco at 66.6. Justin Lawrence out of Montreal was fourth at 66.4. And David Beard and Hamilton was 66.2. The average grade for ACFL center this season was 63.9. So in other words, you've got three guys in the West Division right there who were graded higher than uh, Sean McEwen, five total at least, and and none of them were, were given consideration over Sean McEwen, which I thought was a miss. Something else I thought was a miss is personally, I would have liked to see Cameron Judge get the nod at West Division linebacker over Micah Awe. Yes, Micah Awe had a million tackles, but I also think that Regardless of who you stick in the middle of that Calgary Stampeders defense, they're going to get a million tackles just because of the way that they're built, right? Darnell Sankey did that a few years ago. We saw Jameer Thurman have a million tackles last year. Cameron Judge, to me, is the more dynamic playmaker. And by the way, boys, as we are recording this show, the CFL All-Stars have been announced. Zach Kolaris and Chad Kelly up for the All-Stars quarterback spot. I want your live prediction, Dunk. Who you think got it, Kolaris or Kelly? It's going to be Kelly just based on media consensus and fatigue for Kolaris. JC, who do you think got it? I peeked at the results, so I have to accuse myself. I know the result. Okay, it was Chad Kelly. And by the way, Zach Kolaris was the obvious choice at West Division, which I know the West Coast media is going to take as a horrible shot and an act of war because saying that Zach Kolaris was better than Vernon Adams Jr. is obviously also an assertion that Vernon Adams Jr. is trash and awful and a terrible quarterback. Even though that's not remotely true, Zach Kolaris just had a slightly better season. But yes, Kolaris was the pick, and I think Kolaris should have been the all-star pick at the CFL level because he threw 10 more touchdown passes than Chad Kelly. I appreciate that Chad Kelly rested down the stretch, and I appreciate that the Argos were the better overall team, but that is not what an all-star is. An all-star is who's the best at the position. Kolaris was the best at the position. Hodge, can you run down the CFL all-stars, and in real time we can see if there's any Guys that got sure. voted I'll, that we don't uh, like. I'll I'll break the I'll break it into five chunks. So let's start off with the offense. I, I some people call them skill positions. I'll call them ball positions. Chad Kelly's the quarterback. Running back, no surprise, is Brady Oliveira. Receivers are Dalton Schoen, Tim White, Keon Hatcher, Austin Mack, and Reggie Bagleton. Any thoughts on that? Man, I, that just seems so stat based for the receivers. Nick Dembski should I be a receiver. Yeah. And I think you can make the argument of Kenny Lawler, too, who didn't play a full season, but in terms of production per game, should be up there. Also, Alexander Hollins 
had a fantastic season for the most part. And I, I think Austin Mack really cooled down the stretch. So there's some arguments there. Also, a lot of drops from Reggie Begleton, even though he was the only guy in Calgary. By the way, shout out to Kenny Lawler. Every time I see him in the locker room after games, he goes, what up, three down nation? Let's go. Offensive line is Darius Sirocco at center, Ryan Hunter, Patrick Newfelt, the guards, and the tackles are Dijon Allen and Jermarcus Hardrick. Any thoughts? You got the tackles right. I think they nailed those two of the eligible ones. The the guy who would have been in contention for me but didn't get a divisional all-star was Darrell Broxton out in BC, who I thought was better than Stanley Bryant. But uh, elsewhere, they of the two centers they had the choices of, Sirocco was better than McEwen. But you all know what I think about who should have been the all-star center in Chris Kolonkowski. And the guards are fine, but Brandon Revenberg, I thought was exceptional this season as well. Uh, Pierre-Olivier Lestage, I would have had up there. Peter Nicastro, I think, was maybe as good as Ryan Hunter. So I'm not crazy about the guards. I think they sort of shoehorned one East guy and one West guy in there. Uh, I think generally offensive line picks are inaccurate in all-star voting for the very obvious reason that nobody cares enough to watch them. Jarrell Broxton, I think, should have been in there at tackle over Jamarcus, Jamarcus Hardrick, excuse me. And I really think, you know, I just said it a few minutes ago, Brandon Revenberg, for my money, is the best guard in the league. He should have yeah. been an all-star. Christian Matt, too, also had a great season. I mean, the, the East Division was loaded at guard. There wasn't very many West Division guards who were worth their salt. Paddy Newfeld was the one, but I still think there's several East Division guys that I would have taken over him this season. I I will pound the table a little bit for my boy Patrick Newfelt, but I will also say that the game he sat out, the offensive line still looked fantastic with Tuielli and Liam Dobson, I think, taking a big step, playing a lot of snaps at tight end this year. So I agree that the East probably should have had more represented, but the guard position is is, is a bit of a tricky one because there it was so stacked this year. Unlike tackle, I felt like the tackle, it was really slim pickings. The guard spots were popping off defensively we'll go with the fronts I, I i still call it a front seven you could argue it's more of a front six the defensive ends are matthew betts and willie jefferson for the record i think that's right the interior was mike rose and casey sales i also think that was right and then the linebackers witten mcmanus and micah awe cover linebacker easy pick in a darius picket your feedback we'll start with dunk this time man i just don't think micah awe should be in there a guy that has a bunch of tackles on a Pretty bad football team. We've seen it year in and year out. The rest I like, but Awe doesn't deserve to be in there. There's a bunch of other dudes that have more of a case. I'm sympathetic to people who voted Awe, even though I hate when you just give it to the guy with the most tackles. It's simply the separation from the next closest guy that makes me sympathetic to that because he was so far and above everyone else in terms of his production. But I still think that is influenced largely by him playing middle linebacker and a lot of those tackles just being right in his face. Easier plays to make. Cameron Judge was exceptional personally. I would have taken Jake Ceresna over Willie Jefferson. That was predetermined in the West Division All-Star. I thought that was a slight mistake, but I think both of those guys are talented players and, and both are deserving of some recognition. 
Last up, we'll go to the secondary defensively. This is Demario Houston and Gary Peters at corner. Halfbacks are Robertson Daniel and TJ Lee. Safety is Marc-Antoine DeCroix. I can already tell you, I got no notes. These are the right picks in my mind. Uh, to me, I vehemently am opposed to Demario Houston at the corner. And yes, I know he leads the CFL in interceptions, and that's very impressive. Good for him. That means absolutely nothing in terms of your ability as a coverage player. Uh, just a few years ago, Tremaine Washington was the leader of the CFL in interceptions. I don't think anyone would argue that he is an all-star caliber player. Richard Leonard and Gary Peters were the two best corners in the CFL this year. And Quantez Stiggers, I think, was third. Um, it's unfortunate that Richard Leonard wasn't even an East Division All-Star. I think he's one of the people who got robbed. Uh, and he should have been on this CFL All-Star team alongside Gary Peters. Those two were locked down all season long. Demario Houston just had the stats that people look at. Uh, TJ Lee, I'm also lukewarm on being on this team. I thought there were better options at halfback. Oh, man, it gets so tricky, especially in the defensive backfield there. I think Richard Leonard did have an outstanding season. And, you know, I think there is a guy right there where you are, Hodge, in Winnipeg that doesn't get a lot of hype. Evan Holm at halfback. I had him as a guy very highly rated. I know he doesn't get a lot of buzz, but he's a dude that's Plays at a high level really consistently, under the radar. I think Evan Holm had more knockdowns than any other DB in the league this year. He took a massive... By the way, Evan Holm, not that admittedly I go to a lot of practice during training camp, but last year in training camp, he looked terrible, I thought. He looked like a complete liability, and he was brought in exclusively as a return specialist. To me, he has done, at least from my experience, I'll only speak for myself, I have never seen a player jump as dramatically from year one to year two as he has. He has gone from someone who initially looked like he was lost out there to somebody who I would trust to guard just about any receiver in the CFL. That being said, you're in tough against Robertson, Daniel, TJ Lee. I will pound the table a little bit for Demario Houston. Yes, the picks are part of it, but he's at least playing on the boundary side in the West where you're going up against a lot of tough receivers. When you're playing field corner for the Hamilton Tiger Cats and you're guarding the the Z that the Ottawa Red Blacks and the Montreal Alouettes are throwing out there, it's tough to garner that favor. Yes, Richard Leonard had a great season, but the quality of the competition to me is not the same. Like, talk to me when you're guarding the boundary receiver in BC and, and Eugene Lewis and those guys who you see more often in Winnipeg. It's a higher level of competition. Finally, the specialist kicker, no surprises, Sean White. Richie Leone's the punter. Javon Leak is the kick returner. Leak, I think, was the obvious choice to me. Joseph Zema should have been the punter, but he didn't get out of the East, so therefore he is not the CFL All-Star, despite leading the league in net punting yeah I, I, I think those yeah no arguments from me uh besides the fact that i want to give a shout out to boris biggie who was the only guy in the league who performed all three jobs this season at some stage and i thought was very good at all of them to me that gives him a little bit of love in my eyes for an all-star selection although sean white was indisputably the better kicker of the two I'm just here to make sure we get in some U sports talk, boys. Conference championship weekend out east, Bishops at St. FX in Ontario, Laurier at Western in Quebec, Laval at Montreal. And on the East Coast, beautiful 
UBC. Hopefully, we get the sun that we got last week for the Hardy Coast. Cup semifinal and Hardy Cup. What's that? West Coast, not East Coast. Oh my gosh. What am I thinking? Jesus, time change. I'll blame the time change. We got the University of Alberta at UBC. Boys, give me your picks for these four games. We have we have a whole segment coming up in the three minute drill about this. Yeah, but it's not as wholesome. Uh, fine. <laughs> go ahead, JC. Oh, I gotta go with the, the hometown T Birds. You know, I'm a UBC alum. Uh, I can't pretend to be unbiased in this particular matchup. My family, my dad is a diehard Golden Bears fan and an alumnus of the University of Alberta. And we would go at it when those two teams clashed. I think the Alberta Golden Bears have had a tremendous season. They haven't won the Hardy Cup, I don't think, since 1981. That is absolutely absurd. But I think Garrett Rooker is the better quarterback, and I will take the better quarterback in this game. I, I'm also going to take the home team here, but I will say I love that the Golden Bears are getting a second crack at this. The Golden Bears hosted the UBC Thunderbirds in the regular season finale. Had they won, they would have finished first in Canada West for the first time in decades. They blew that opportunity. They're getting a chance at a reprieve. And I, I frankly, I, I'm just cheering for a close game, but I, I think that the Golden Bears will have a better showing. I still think that it's tough for the Thunderbirds to they're, they're a vaunted team at home. And, and by the way, no disrespect to the Saskatchewan Huskies. It does feel nice to have some fresh blood in this game, knowing that we're going to have some fresh blood at the national stage coming out of Canada West. Let's go around the country a little bit. I got St. Effects in the Loney bowl. I think Laval Montreal is going to be an absolute slobber knocker. The Ketaban are likely the favorites there, but we've seen upsets in the past in the Dunsmore between both of these teams. Western and Laurier, very intriguing. Golden Hawks quarterback Taylor Algersma had an outstanding year, as did his counterpart in this game, Evan Hillock. It was Algersma who got the nod for OUA first-team all-star quarterback over him. So I'm sure Hillock is going to want to be showing him that, hey, I'm more about the team side of the accolades. In the regular season game, the Mustangs got out to a big lead. The Hawks battled back. They've had an epic Yates Cup. In the past, Mark Lee and I called that one where the Golden Hawks won at the Mustangs' home field. So that game, I think, is going to be really good. And then this game at Thunderbird Stadium, I think, is going to be a great matchup. Two physical teams. You want to talk about how good the Golden Bears are now? They beat up the Huskies physically last week in a dominating performance. And I think it would have been much different if the Huskies had a little bit more of a veteran quarterback. Anton Amonrude is in his first season as a starter, even though he's been around the program for a number of years now. I think that was a key difference. The Golden Bears have a bunch of playmakers. Hodge, I know you know about Matt Peterson. They have Carter Kettle, Colby Herford, Jonathan Rosary, of course, a Blue Bombers draft pick. They got a stout, a little bit younger of an offensive line, though. And Hetlinger, their quarterback, is a guy that had some NCAA interest coming out of Harry Ainley in Edmonton. But they got the hometown kid to stay there. I do agree that Roker is the better quarterback in this matchup. I'm not going to pick the game because I'm calling it on the Canada West Football Showcase. But UBC is stacked especially on offense, and they have a defense under Pat Tracy that is playing at a very high level. Kyle Sampson had a mammoth game for the Thunderbirds on defense last week. Mitch Townsend, Blake Mill feels like, is the most underrated linebacker 
perhaps in all of Canadian University football. Isaiah Knight, their outstanding running back, has taken his game to another level. Shamar McBean is essentially a track guy on the field in terms of his speed. And Sam Davenport, a very physical receiver who made a couple of key catches last week to beat a scrappy Manitoba team. So I think across the country, some great matchups in Canadian University football. My upset special, because you just sort of put it up the top and and dismissed it, because I know you hate the AUS dunk, is Bishops is going to beat SangFX this weekend. That's my big upset special. I hated the AUS, though. No, I'm 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 ribbing you, but you never think they deserve a spot in the top ten. You gotta have at least one in there. <laughs> yeah, it depends. But, I think state effects is gonna be really hard to beat at home, dude. Malcolm Bussey well, and the rest. The last time these two teams faced off, it was I believe thirty four thirty one in overtime for Sang Effects. So Bishops played yeah. them really tough, and I think they have a great run game that is multifaceted. They just rotate guys in there, or even run their fullback uh, Marco Brion Briones from from Mexico in there, and then they have an opportunistic defense that generates a lot of turnovers. That is a recipe for me to pull an upset in a playoff game. I think they can potentially do it after playing Sang effects very tough in the regular season. Of course, the only guy JC references in the game is a global player. Makes sense. Hey, right? hey, hey, I can give you multiples. You they're they're pick artists on please, the back please end. Please don't. Is please don't. Please don't. Do not. Do not. Interceptions. I will mute you. I will mute you. We're going to talk about. Uh, in the next segment, no. all about U Sports Conference All Stars. There's three, three from global countries, three across the nation. When we start talking about global players in the AUS, that's how you know this podcast has gone on for so long. <laughs> it's time for Hodges' heritage moment on this day in 2009. The Hamilton Tiger Cats defeated the Winnipeg Blue Bombers at Canada Stadium by a score of 39 17. Markeith Knowlton returned an interception for a touchdown midway through the fourth quarter, sealing the game and eliminating Winnipeg from playoff contention. Knowlton, Jaikeen Bradley, Otis Floyd, Jamal Johnson, Tyler Smith, Chris Thompson, and Jeff Tisdale celebrated the score by jumping into a boat that was parked behind the end zone. The players were fined for an excessive celebration, but created a moniker for the contest that has since been called the Boat Game. Dunk. You're a Guelph boy. What do you remember from the tabbies in this one? <laughs> Dude, that celebration was amazing. I think it's Joaquin Bradley, who has still been training guys in and around the Hamilton area. He had a gym at Brantford there and was really behind Chris Aki, if I remember. So, you know, what stands out to me is kind of these guys coming to the community, obviously making a play that will go down in history and be remembered forever by Tiger Cats fans, but staying there and developing some young people within the cities that they came to as Americans. Yeah, it's it's a memorable moment for me. My real question is, why the hell was there a boat there? I don't quite get it. Can someone so, fill me in? Yeah, so I, I have to go back and look, but I believe it was something of a promotion where, like, because there, there was a lot of distance at Canadians between the back of the end zone and the start of the stands. And so there was, like, on the concrete pad, they pulled up a motorboat, and I think it was like a contest, or it's like it's like an ad for like a local sponsor, like either come buy a boat from us, or hey, if you enter this contest, you could win. It was something like that. But there was a boat there, and um, two things. One, if I don't know if it's Wykeen or Jaikeen, unfortunately, my my apologies to Mr. Bradley, but he's now the DB coach of the Ottawa Red Blacks. Uh, and secondly, 
The only negative thing I have to say about the celebration, why did it have to happen before social media existed? Because <laughs> even just two, three years later, this would have gone so viral. Score on the pick six, jump in the boat. That would have gotten millions of clicks all around North America and the globe. Unfortunately, it happened in 2009. So close. So close. Now time for the three-minute drill. The Red Blacks have let go offensive coordinator Kahari Jones. Was this deserved? And who do you think could potentially replace him in the nation's capital? Breaks my heart to say because he was the quarterback of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers when I was growing up in Winnipeg. But yes, this was deserved. Talking to people around the league, there were some questions about the size of Ottawa's playbook. There were some questions about their play calling being predictable, especially against some of the teams they played repeatedly in the East Division. Who can replace him? To me, the answer is very simple for the Ottawa Red Blacks. Hire Tommy Condell and sign Dane Evans to be your starting quarterback. Bring back Jeremiah Masoli as the 1B to Jeremiah Masoli's 1A. That trio worked together in Hamilton. What about Dustin Crumb? Up here in 2021. Dustin Crumb could be the number three, and you can groom him. But I think that group knows if they don't win in 2024, they're all getting fired. You cannot trust Dustin Crumb with your organization, with jobs on the line, go get Dane Evans, Jeremiah Masoli, Dustin Crum. That's a good trio. Get the band back together. It worked well in Hamilton. I think it can work well in the nation's capital. All four youth sports conferences have unveiled their all-stars for 2023. Which selection stood out the most to you? It's been some incredible performances across the country this year, and I'm sure we'll talk about those more as we get into the award selections, but... The three I want to highlight here from the All-Stars are UBC receiver Sam Davenport, UBC uh, cornerback Jarrell Cummings, and Wilfred Laurier halfback Jahari Hastings. And the reason why all three of those players were part of the exodus from the SFU football program when that was kiboshed, and now despite all the adversity they faced, they are all All-Stars in their respective conferences, top players in U-Sports, and I think at least... One of them will get an all-Canadian nod. That is incredible considering what they faced and how disrespected they were by that institution at Simon Fraser University. And a lot of people around the country who said, well, the SFU football program is not that good. They don't have any good players. Well, look at these guys who have gone to other conferences and have absolutely dominated this season. Good on them. Good on them. Canadian-American quarterback Brett Rippon struggled in his first start with the Los Angeles Rams, completing 13 of 28 pass attempts for 130 yards and one interception this past weekend. Could this be his last chance to make an impact in the NFL? It could be. He's been placed on waivers. I would imagine that's to send him back down to the practice squad, but it's been very difficult for him to come in in some of these spot starts on the various teams he's been on. I think he's shown that he's a guy that can help out in the quarterback room, whoever the starter is with the franchise that he's on. You know, there's a possibility based on injuries that he could get other opportunities down the road. The Argos have brought in the Trues to play before and during the halftime of the East Final while selling over 2,300 tickets. Are those a big deal? First of all, it's 23,000 tickets, not 2,300 tickets. Because we don't want to say 2,300. All the haters are going to come out. Yes, it is a big deal to me. This is the best attended Argos game since 2017. And I know that there's going to be people on Twitter saying, oh, it's still a joke that they don't sell out this game, blah, 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 blah. Look, I'm not an Argos apologist. I've called them on their poor attendance in the past and their poor engagement. 
guess what? The Argos are building this right. They are rallying around a true star in Chad Kelly, and they saw a 20% increase in the regular season ticket sales. They've already surpassed the East Final from last year by 2,000 tickets. Is it where it should be? No. But given where this team was a year ago off the field, they have done an incredible job, and it is now our job as members of the media and fans to hold them accountable and continue to see growth in Toronto because continued growth is needed, but what they've done the last year should be commended. Calgary Stampeders fullback Charlie Power has retired from the CFL, while teammate Rene Paradis said he plans to come back next year. Were either of those announcements a surprise? I don't know if either of them are are shocking. I'm certainly glad for Ryan Ballantyne that Rene Paradise is going to be back because he'll actually have something to talk about that's positive on that Calgary Stampeders team. <laughs> going forward but i would like to congratulate charlie power on a tremendous career on special teams this is a guy who coming out of the university of saskatchewan was a linebacker converted to a slot back tight end type came to the cfl played fullback and six straight seasons with the exception of the one year that he missed all of it for a blowing achilles he was double digit in special teams tackles right up until the end of his career that is a remarkable accomplishment and uh, congratulations to him the cfl's tv ratings dipped slightly for the eastern and western semifinals combined should the league go back to sunday for all their playoff games not quite yet. You probably need a bigger sample size, though. I will say, Hodge and I were talking about this before we started recording the podcast. If you had all of the playoff games, the Eastern and Western semifinals and the finals, and obviously the Grey Cup, but mostly the semifinals and the finals on Sunday, and they started in the later window, like perhaps 4 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. in the West, that would be intriguing to me. I know you want to get away from the NFL, but what is king on... Canadian television is Hockey Night in Canada. And that Lions-Stampeders game kicked off at 6.30 just before puck drop of the Toronto Maple Leafs and Buffalo Sabres and whatever other teams are playing. I know the Canucks were not playing at that time. They played later, right after the Lions game was over. But hockey, as much as some football people in this country might not want to hear it, is king on television, especially the institution that is at each NIC. So I think they have to look at the data here and at least think about, well, you know, do we look at Sunday, 4 p.m., 7 p.m., or do we look at Saturday, 1 p.m., 4 p.m. to avoid any crossover with Hockey Night in Canada? The Red Blacks aren't guaranteeing that quarterback Jeremiah Masoli will be the team starter in 2024 following another injury-plagued season. Is that a prudent decision? I do think that it is a prudent decision. As I said, this is a team that I think knows that they're going to clean house if they have another bad season, right? Kahari Jones was this year's scapegoat. Next year, it could be the head coach, Bob Dice. It could be the GM, Sean Burke. They need to get it right. You cannot go in with Masoli, especially because in his postgame avail, he said as of like, like January 1, he was hoping to be back another six to eight months down the road. Well, that puts him back at somewhere between Canada Day and the end of the summer. Like, they cannot go into the season with him as the number one. And I also don't think you can go into Dustin Crump as the number one. You're going to need somebody to meet Dane Evans, again, as the guy who makes the most sense. Martavis Bryant, who signed with Toronto and Edmonton, but never actually reported to either team 
has signed with the Dallas Cowboys. Is that a surprise? Yeah, it's a big surprise. I mean, this guy hasn't played in the NFL since 2018, I believe, was the last time he was on the field. He has signed with multiple CFL teams, never bothered to show up, signed with an indoor football league team, never bothered to show up, and finally played in the fan-controlled football league, had not impressive numbers there and then said he was going to go in the xfl and oh never showed up there either now the dallas cowboys want him how desperate do you have to be to take a shot on martavis bryant right now i don't understand this move at all university of calgary dinos head coach wayne harris jr just has announced his retirement how are you going to remember his tenure in cowtown the thing that stands out most is the 2019 Vanier Cup that the Dinos won. It was their first one since 1995, which is almost hard to understand because they had so many dominant teams there, especially under former head coach Blake Nill, who's now at UBC. And when Harris took over there as well, the Hardy Cup for a 10-year streak was hosted by the Dinos. And out of that, they were only able to win one Vanier Cup. It shows you how difficult it is to do. And also the fact that a lot of these Canada West teams beat each other up and might not be the healthiest going into those national semifinal and ultimately the Vanier Cup. But Harris will be remembered for bringing that national championship back to Calgary in 2019. One quick correction. Martavis Bryant did play in the XFL, JC. Shame oh. on you for oh. not tuning in. To watch the Vegas Vipers. He caught 14 passes for 154 yards over eight games, which is hardly eye-popping. That's a superstar by XFL standards, Hodge. Apparently. Anyways, we thank you as always for listening to the Three Down Nation podcast. Please enjoy the playoff games this week and come back for next week's episode. We'll be live in Hamilton getting ready for the 110th breakup. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.